Growing up, what were the things that you were not good at? I think growing up, I'd always been good at, at making plans and a plan that would work. So if I had like a homework assignment, I was good at figuring out, all right, if I wrote this many pages for this essay, by this point it will be done and I'll be good. I was always good at making those plans. I was not always great at executing them. So it's like, oh, I have this great plan and then I wouldn't follow it and I'd have to like write the whole thing the night before and it wasn't that great. So I think I've always been more interested in uh, creating that thing than actually doing it necessarily, which is maybe why I got into screenwriting because perhaps I'm more interested in writing the story and then letting other people just execute cr the creation of it because it's to me the creative work, uh, I've already gotten the fulfillment out of it, what I need. I think that'd be it. When did you start calling yourself a writer? I think I started calling myself a writer maybe about three years ago. Pro probably when I moved to Los Angeles, I started taking it seriously. And even then, I think I was a little bit hesitant to call myself a writer. I think I still am a little bit, but I had written for a few years before when I was living in Atlanta, but never seriously, never professionally. And it wasn't until I made the move that I decided, like, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer. This is what I'm doing. Why were you hesitant? Was it because it was too easy to be this, like, I hate to use the cliche of the LA, like, multi-hyphenate, you know, where, but sometimes that, that turns people off because then they're like, well, well, if you do all these things, what are you good at? So were you afraid to do? I think it was that I was afraid to call myself something that I wasn't actually doing professionally. And when I mean professionally, I mean getting paid to do. So I wouldn't call myself a writer because no one was paying me to write. And so even though I was writing, it just felt weird to say, oh, I'm a writer. Because I think when people say, when people ask you, what do you do? I always, I guess, internalize that as what do you, what is your career? What do you get paid to do? And I wasn't getting paid to write yet. So I still wouldn't call myself a writer, even though almost every morning I was writing. I just didn't feel like I had earned it yet because no one had, had paid me for it. And I think that's why sometimes I still feel a little bit hesitant because if I'm not on a job or doing anything, then I'm like, well, am I a writer? I don't, not, not right now, so. Well, it's really interesting because I think so many people, especially being around entertainment, and it sounds like you've been around entertainers all your life, mm -hmm. they, they're always putting that label on maybe even before it's even warranted. So it's, it's interesting that you, you were hesitant to do that. Yeah, I think I was just, I don't know, maybe there's also a fear of being put in a box, even if it's a box that I realize now I, I want to be in. It just felt weird to say, oh, I'm a writer, because maybe it, it meant to me that I'm not anything else. And I didn't feel like that was accurate you know i'm just i i'm david and i write but i also i love to sail and i love magic and so like all these other things and it's like but i'm not a sailor i'm not a magician so i i it just felt weird to be like oh i am a writer like that's the box i'm in even though of all the different boxes of all the stuff i'm interested in that's what i'm most fulfilled by when was the first time you saw someone perform magic i don't I don't remember the first time I saw someone perform magic, but my, my dad is a big magic fan of watching it. He has no interest in doing it, but he, he loves it. So we were on a family vacation in Texas and there was 
basically a, a Texan version of the Magic Castle here in LA. And so my dad got tickets for the whole family and we went and we're going in and out of these different rooms, seeing different magicians close up and bigger illusions on stages and all sorts of stuff. And I think that just stuck with me. And so I go to the Magic Castle every now and then and I'll be taking magic classes in a few months. And it's just always been something that interests me, but I have no sort of professional aspirations. It's like as a purely as a hobby. When did the outside world validate your writing and what did that mean to you? I think the first time the outside world validated my writing was when I was living in Atlanta and I wrote something I didn't really know what it was yet, what I was doing, and I just passed it to some friends at the, the company I was working for, none of whom were professional screenwriters or any, even had an interest in, in the in story or the craft or anything, but one responded, one of my friends responded really strongly. He said, this is really good. This is really good. I, I think that the story could be better, but this shows that you're a really good writer. And that was the first time I think the way he said it, I felt like there was something that he was resonating with in the writing and not just saying, oh, you're, you're good at this thing. I, I, I can see it and you're good. I, it felt like to me, he was actually moved by parts of it. It wasn't great yet and he told me that, but there was, some, there was something in there that he responded to. And so seeing that reaction in someone from something I had actually written a full screenplay for was the first time I think I felt I could maybe do this. What about the first time you were paid for writing? How did that feel and how long did it take you up until that point? The first time I was paid for writing, I felt like all of a sudden I had all this free time on my hands because before I had always been doing other work to get paid and then I was writing. So the first time I didn't have to do all that other work and I just focused on the writing, I could spend more time writing, but I still had all this free time that I, I didn't know what to do with. And I always, I felt guilty for not spending it writing. Um, and so it sort of felt like, is this what it's like? Should I, what should I be doing with my time? Because I didn't quite know what to do. I didn't have to go looking for other jobs right away. Near the end of the project, I had to start thinking, okay, what's next? I gotta go make sure there's work for me somewhere after this, this job is up but it was incredibly freeing on the one hand, but also pretty scary on the other because now it was this totally new lifestyle during those weeks that I didn't know, I hadn't been used to, and I didn't know what to do about it. So did you ask anybody? Like, did you check in with any other people that had been in your shoes before and say like, I'm having, this, is, this feels different? Um, I didn't. I didn't really check in with anyone because I didn't, it was while I was in Atlanta at the time and the, the people I knew were not necessarily screenwriters and I had kind of sort of as a fluke almost tripped into this screenwriting opportunity that I got paid to do. And so I didn't know, I had no clue what to do and I didn't even know who to reach out for. And how did you, how did you accidentally get involved in that, you know, Georgia screenwriting project? Um, I, the, the company I was working for at the time, which was a video production company, and we had done a few feature films and a couple short films, and I had pitched them on, on making a movie, 
And one of their friends had just kind of a crazy life story and he was in the middle of it. And my boss and him were talking one time and they're like, we could make a movie out of this. And so then they came to me and they're like, I think we're gonna maybe try to write a movie out of this. Do you wanna write it? Uh, you don't have to worry about editing or doing some of your other tasks. You, you'll just focus on writing. And I said, yeah, of course, yeah, absolutely. And so I started doing it and I just, I, then I didn't know what, what to do with myself. Um, so I was learning basically how to screenwrite professionally um, on the job. I'd studied it and I had written my own work, but I'd never been paid to it. So all the other things that come with writing a screenplay that are not related to the craft was totally new to me, but I was now getting paid to do it. And so I had to figure it out of just how to navigate that world. You think it was easier because this was your boss? Like if this had been somebody that you never had met before? Or was it actually scarier? I think it was easier. I think it was an easier job, uh, not necessarily because he was my boss, but because we had a good relationship. He was, he was a good friend and so I trusted him and he trusted me and so we were able to do that and there was a good line of communication when I felt like I was struggling to make a deadline for certain pages or I needed more, I needed to go back and we needed to talk to this guy again because it was his life story. And so he was really good about managing me, getting me access to him, but also pushing me and telling me when I needed to, you know, like just challenge myself a little more. Maybe I didn't need that more access. Maybe that was just a way that I was afraid of going and writing the pages. He said, no, just go, go ahead and, and write and just, you're on, we're on deadline. And he was really good about that. So I think all things considered, it was definitely better for me than not good for me. Did you know up until that point that you would try to make your living as a writer or this opportunity just presented itself? I had thought about seriously pursuing writing before that first opportunity came up. And so I'd been studying it. I'd always been interested in it. So I'd always been reading and reading screenplays, reading books about screenwriting, but more as just part of a, a larger filmmaking curriculum. I didn't know necessarily what I wanted to do, but it was probably in the few months leading up to that that I thought maybe writing is actually where I, I really want to focus, where I'm most fulfilled, where I'm decent at it. And I had, perhaps just kind of been more vocal about that at where I was working and that's probably why this job came up and I was considered to write it. And so I think it was, I'd thought about it before writing that project and I think writing that project really solidified, okay, this is what I want to do. And probably at that point it got in my head that I should move out to LA if I'm going to get serious about this. You grew up in North Carolina, correct? Yeah. At what point did you say that you would move to LA? So you're living in Georgia, you get this great opportunity. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the perfect thing for someone as a, as a first time screenwriting project. Yeah, it was great. I think from that point, it was about six months to when I left Atlanta, but I wasn't actually sure where I was going to go. Because um, my, my girlfriend was also looking for a move to get more serious about her profession in uh, performance and writing. 
but we didn't know where a good fit for both of us would be. So we saved up tons of money and we actually took about a five month road trip and we checked out New York. We were there for about a month. My sister lived there at the time and so we stayed with her for a month. We went to Chicago, stayed with my aunt, went to LA, didn't know anyone, so a couple Airbnbs and some, some motel rentals. Uh, but basically we wanted to park in those cities for a couple weeks so that we could see what it would be like to live there beyond just visiting, both as the city, how we liked it, and also professionally, like what was going on. And after doing the three of them, pretty quickly LA became the clear choice. And so then we drove back to Georgia, picked up all of our stuff out of a storage unit, and then trucked it all the way back out west. That's really interesting. So instead of doing a road trip documentary mm -hmm. or something, you just did, your, your life was this road trip and then you sort of based on where you wanted to land, so to speak. Yeah, we checked out, we went to tons of screenings, tons of theaters in all those cities, tried to go to as many meetups as possible, set up as many meetings just over coffee with whoever we could, just to get a sense of the community and the industry within those cities and where we would have the best shot at starting off. And LA was the choice that became apparent, especially for me as a feature writer. And then once we saw the theater scene in LA, it worked out for my girlfriend as well. Where was the first place you, you drove to? Like when you, when you got off the five or whatever, 101, where was the first place you, destination? Um, the first place we stopped was West Hollywood. I had a friend, it was actually my mom's best friend's son, who I'd, I'd met a few times, and I asked him if we could crash on his couch for a bit, and he let us as way longer than we had, we told him we probably <laughs> would be, be there, um, but right in West Hollywood. Wow. Mm. How was the parking? It was tough. <laughs> Yeah. That's the thing you, a lot of people I don't think think about, you know, and yeah. the parking is such an issue so yeah. many places. <laughs> I, in my budget, I allow like at least two tickets a year. I just, oh, I, do just you? Okay. I just figure it's got, I'll mess up somewhere. So you go back to Georgia, you, you get your stuff, you come here to LA. Was it more difficult than you had initially imagined? It was not more difficult than I had imagined moving to LA, but it was difficult. I had saved up and I was ready to dig in and I had hoped that maybe I would had been over prepared uh, but I felt like I was prepared and it was tough especially that first year and it's not that I didn't have successes that first year it's that it was way more kind of up up and down it was higher higher highs and lower lows that first year of not just screenwriting, but even just living in a new city, a big city, an expensive city. And so I got here, immediately started looking for part-time work, just wherever I could get it. Started looking for internships wherever I could. I ended up with three internships at one point. I was going into, uh, I was assisting at a talent agency two days a week. I was remotely reading scripts for a production company. And then as soon as that one ended, I got into reading scripts for a management company here in LA. And so it was really busy, all of course unpaid, so I'm doing my part-time work as well, and I'm trying to write my own material at the same time. And so it was a real grind at first. And 
The second year got easier, but just as the there weren't as many lower lows or higher highs, but it was still that little bit of a grind. And I think I let the pedal off a little bit. I thought I had kind of, oh, I figured this out. And I think LA started pushing back a little bit as well. And I felt it. And so now after three, just about three whole years here, I feel like, okay, I think I figured out at least how to live here. Now let's figure out how to screen right here. Oh, wow, mm. that's interesting. Okay, what was the most difficult thing to get used to in terms of living in LA? And then also, what's the most difficult in terms of looking for screenwriting work? In terms of living in LA, the most difficult thing for me was definitely the traffic and the timing of things. I am a planner, so I'm always, I definitely want to be there on time for whatever meeting, whatever thing I have going on. And not only was I holding myself to that standard, but also other people. So I, the traffic I knew would be really bad. And so I would leave excessively early and I'd get to a coffee meeting for someone to, to meet with over a project. There's another writer to ask for advice. And I would be upset when they were late, even if it was like five or 10 minutes late, like irrationally upset. And so it was a difficult learning curve for me to sort of learn to let that go. And just people are going to be either really late or really early because traffic is just so erratic here and you can never tell where it's gonna be backed up and for how long. So once I started just getting in the habit of making sure that I always had a new book on my Kindle or my phone or something, I always had something to do and something to work on, it got a lot easier for me to just sort of hang out and wait for people to meet. And also I realized how great people were about when I was running late how they were just, they were cool with it. And I was like, well, I need to learn how to be cool about it too. Yeah, I remember for me coming here as well, that was a lesson someone had to sit me down and talk to me about. Because I would hold myself to that standard and I would beat myself up if I was like five minutes late. Mm -hmm. And then the same for someone else. And so I, I, that was a tough one for me as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I think if you're conscientious when someone else isn't, it's like, you're like, whoa, you know, and I think that that was a tough one for me yeah. too. Yeah. Well, I would feel, <laughs> I would feel terrible if I was running late and then when I would finally get there, the other person would just be like, yeah, no, no big deal, traffic. I was like, oh, I need to learn how to be like that. I mean, <laughs> I need to be as cool about it as you are when you're the one running late. Right. That's because, you know, I felt taken care of and I wanted to make sure that I was taking care of people too. And they ran into traffic. Sure. And then there's just people that are chronically late all the time. They just use that as an excuse, but. <laughs> well, the, the great thing about LA is that it's, it's the permanent excuse. You can just always just say traffic. Right, yeah. exactly. And it's a great time to, to give yourself time to do something if you're super early for things. Because sometimes you'll, you'll surprise yourself and you'll be like 45 minutes early for something. I'm assuming, I'm sorry. Yeah. That that's, that happens <laughs> to me too. And, and then you're just sitting there and you have all this time and yeah. you can do other things. Well, what I started doing is when I would, anytime I'd have a meeting, I would just go there hours early and then I would just work. If I had the time, I would just get, get there super early so I don't have to worry about it. And now all that time between when I would drive and meeting someone, I would just work there. Instead of working at home or a coffee shop, I would just go work at the coffee shop I was about to meet them at. That way I'm just there and I can literally just work right up until whenever they show up, whether they're early, late, right on time. I can get my work done. So it sounds like the most difficult part of just the living arrangements in LA is the traffic and wanting to be on time for people, mm -hmm. and that's understandable, and that's commendable. 
What about the most difficult time in getting acclimated to finding screenwriting work? Because um, there's also a looseness, the yeah. way things are done here too, in terms of, yeah, and everyone's nice, and <laughs> I never hear from them yeah. again. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm actually, if I'm really like sort of qualified to answer that question. I feel like I'm still trying to figure out how to get screenwriting work. I feel like the screenwriting work I've gotten is mostly through friends or friends of friends. I have yet to figure out how to just secure that job, find that job, get it, and start working. Both of the jobs I've had since I've moved here, it was not planned to be a job. It was a friend saying, hey, I have a friend out in LA who actually directs films. You guys should grab coffee just to catch up, um, see what they're up to. And we have coffee, we end up talking, and then a few days later, I get the call, hey, would you actually want to write my screenplay? But there was never any sort of, oh, I'm going in to pitch on this thing, or I'm going to meet with this director because he's looking for a screenwriter. There was never any of that in any of the jobs I've ever gotten. So. I guess I'd say the most difficult thing is figuring that out that you won't necessarily know how your jobs are going to come to you and being okay with that and going to meet people and hang out with people and talk to people with no sense of a job on the other end but recognize that just through meeting people you're gonna have more opportunities even if you don't necessarily know what they are. That was another conversation someone had with me too. Just the looseness of, in terms of, you could never, you might, yeah, we should totally connect, never hear from them, and then you hear from them like a year later, mm -hmm. and then they have something great for you. And you were like, wow, they never even returned my call, that's so weird. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll take it, you know? Yeah. But that that's another thing too, it's like, there's not really a lot of rules and there's no hard yes or no sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the way this industry works, it could be that, one year ago, I met someone who's gonna change my life next year. And I have no clue who that person is. But I could get a call from someone I met at a mixer or some sort of table read, something, and say, hey, that thing you said about that project you were working on, I really dug that. And my buddy is actually doing something similar. You should talk to him, and then that ends up being a job. But I have no clue that that thing I did a year ago is gonna pay off a year from now, because that's just how it works and it's really tough to calculate. So I think, if anything, I've learned just to not try and calculate. Yeah, yeah, nothing's definite. Yeah, and that's a hard, especially if you're a planner and I get that and, yeah. and I can fall into the same way that, that you like things to be, boxes to be checked off and so yeah, that's, that's another one that's interesting. There's nothing definite, no hard yes or no. And, mm -hmm. Let's say someone is going on a road trip. They've decided LA is the place they want to live. They say, hey, can we meet for coffee? And can you give me some do's and don'ts? And how do I make roots here? How do I land work? I think that for someone moving here, the advice I would give them, I'd give them two pieces of advice. The first one would be, don't break the bank with where you choose to live. Your day-to-day -day life, make sure that you're living within your means and that your savings, which hopefully you're moving here with, you can extend as long as possible. All the considerations about where you think you might be working, where you think you might be hanging out, 
if you don't know LA yet, then you're not gonna be able to make that decision. So find some place that you can live, and then once you know the city after a few years and you are sure that you wanna stay, you're sure that you wanna keep doing this, then you can find that neighborhood, you go, that's where I want to be, and you can go there at that point. That'd be the first piece of advice. The second piece of advice would be really to take stock in your own network, who you can meet or who you know that can help you meet someone, but also take stock in yourself and where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are as a person, as a professional, and really think about how you are going to first navigate the industry. Because everyone's method of navigation is gonna be really different. So the more you can reflect on yourself and think about how you can fit in, the more success I think you'll have when you try to do that. Do you go to a lot of meetups? I go to a fair amount of meetups, I guess. I co-host uh, sort of a monthly one with a friend. Oh. And... Doing what? Just, we just uh, meet up and we, we just basically pick a place in time and say if you're a writer or you're interested in writing, if you know, really, anyone is welcome. We're writers, we wanna hang out. If that sounds fun to you, you can attend to. You don't have to be a writer, you can just show up. And the first one got way bigger than we thought it would be. And so as we continue to, to host them, we have to make sure that we're places that have the space for it because there's something I think really freeing about writers meeting up to hang out with other writers because um, I'm not necessarily gonna get a job directly from you. Maybe partially through you because you know someone or something like that, but no one feels like they're there to sell or be sold to someone. So we can just kind of meet up and talk shop together and commiserate about just this common situation that we all find ourselves in. Do you think it's also interesting because so many writers, well, and I'm generalizing here that they're <laughs> introverted or they're just more, they're solitary creatures just because of the nature of what they do. Mm -hmm. So to meet other people like that in a city that's so sort of extroverted, it's kind of refreshing. Yeah, I think that's also been a big part of it. And what I always tell people at, at these meetups is just never worry about talking about yourself. Just approach someone and don't even ask them about them, ask them about their project. Ask a writer about their project and they'll just start talking to you because that's the thing that they love. And so you can really get people to open up by just saying, hey, what are you, what are you working on right now? Or I saw that thing that you wrote, tell me more about that. Um, and I think a lot of the introverted writers, particularly us feature writers uh, who tend to live a more isolated lifestyle are willing to open up a lot more when you're just like, okay, I don't have to talk about me, I have to talk about my story, cool. Right, and there's no like qualifiers. We're not like judging like, oh, what categories does this person fit in? Just tell me about your project. I like that. That's like a safe question. Yeah, well, and it's also, it's funny because everyone ha prepares their pitches for when that executive, they get in the elevator with them and, oh, you're a writer, what's your project? And everyone gets on nerves. But as soon as another writer says, tell me about your project, and you know that, well, they're not, gonna buy your project, they can't buy your project because there's another writer. And everyone's pitches get way better when they're talking to someone where there's no pressure. And so you say, tell me about your project. And they go, well, it's a story about this. And they get really animated and they give the best pitch of their lives because it's relaxed and they're just talking to someone else who's just like them. 
That's really cool. So it's just like dinner and drinks and everybody hangs out and just talks about their projects and being a writer. And Yeah. Uh, usually we, we try to go somewhere that has like snacks available, but it's mostly just like drinks and it's just sort of like mingling and cocktails and just hanging out. Cool. And then on Twitter, it looks like you've built a strong community there. Yeah, and that's where I usually get the word out about whatever sort of meetups or mixers I'm trying to put together. I should really give credit to my friend for putting most of it together, and he just kind of tags me, and we end up co-hosting, which really means just we're just there as well because we're the ones that told everyone to go meet up at this place at this time. Was that something you did back home, or is this sort of the new David coming here? No, uh, that, no, that was not something I did back home. I think if I was left to my own devices, I would probably stay in and read a book. And uh, I should give credit to my girlfriend for pushing me in the past year to be more uh, vocal in my opinions about screenwriting and the craft, and also just pay attention to the networking side of the career that I've chosen. And it is part of the job, and it doesn't have to be a bad part of the job, but if you're not naturally inclined to do it, it does take, I think, that little push for someone to remind you, you should also be doing this part of the job. Great. And speaking of opinions on screenwriting, have you worked as a paid script reader? I have not worked as a paid script reader for a company, I've interned at two, two places where I was a reader and I would provide coverage, but I do uh, private work for clients for reading work. And I give notes and calls and uh, line edits as well. Oh, this is something that's new that you've done? Yeah, this is uh, a new endeavor for me. I had been giving notes to friends and doing that for a long time. And a lot of them were really responsive with the quality of the notes that they felt I was given. And a lot of them were encouraging me to, they say, you should do something. You're actually really good at giving notes and figuring out not what you would do, but what I should do for my story and figuring out where it might be not holding together as well and providing solutions while still allowing me the freedom to write my own story. I was just getting a lot of good response for the notes I was giving. And so with some encouragement, I just recently, a few months ago, started taking on private clients, mostly which I find through Twitter, believe it or not. Great. And your website has the way to contact you if people want to submit their scripts? Yeah, I have a whole page that lists all my script services. And then I just have an email. People reach out to me for the availability and rates. and. If we can do it, I'm up to read anything. We recently published a video that talked about 99% of screenplays are rejected after the first scene mm -hmm. by most script readers. So as someone who is, is now starting to read scripts and, and has done it in the past, interning, what would you say to that? I'd say I think why most scripts get rejected after the first scene is really because by the first page you can tell if someone is a good writer or not. And if it's not going to carry you through, then there's usually not a strong enough reason to continue reading. Even if there's a great story underneath it, there's just too much else out there that is a good story and has 
the writing to back it up. So it's not that there's not something great in there, it's just that that script is not at the level yet that it should be in order to move forward into a film. So when you start reading um, a script, what are some things that turn you off immediately, not in terms of formatting and, and you know, misspellings, but just how the story's structured? For me, a big thing that will turn me off pretty quickly is when I feel like the characters aren't truthful, when they're not acting honestly as human beings do. Then I feel like I don't have a steady footing for how this story is going to play out because I'm not actually watching a real human being go through their life. And so that'll probably be the first thing that, that turns me off and is going to be really tough for me to stick with it as the story continues. So it's not necessarily a character who doesn't know themselves well and thinks maybe they're being altruistic but then they have selfish reasons or whatever it is, but it's really that the writer wrote more of a stiff character, like a, it's just sort of too one-dimensional? I think that, yeah, one-dimensional characters for me just don't feel real and I'm not as interested in reading a story that has them. How can you, because like when I watched your trailer and, and the, the character, she looks just like, I believe that that's a real person. Mm -hmm. I saw this person that I want to see her life unfold, even if it's tragic, she seems real to me. If I were to be reading something, how would I see it where I felt that that person was real to me versus it was too fake? I think for me, one of the keys to real characters is specificity. I think that people are incredibly idiosyncratic with the way that they move through the world. Everyone has their little ticks and their things and their preferences. And so the more of those you can throw into a script, uh, onto a character, is gonna make that character feel real. So whenever I see that in a script, I think that's a real person because I don't know anyone like that. And that's a specific thing that a specific person would do. That's this specific person. And now I'm gonna watch them through the rest of the story. And if those specificities fit into a larger theme that the film or show is exploring, then even better. Okay, so if you see someone that, like I'm just taking an example of someone I actually saw at a pizza parlor and they didn't want their pizza to be put into the oven until they saw how it was cut and he made a huge thing about it and I guess they didn't listen to him and they put it in and he was mad. And just, I didn't want to like totally stare at the guy, but just that is a very specific, you can tell that that's probably how he operates yeah. with everything he does. You know? Yeah, and that's that's a very specific thing and you think it that sounds kind of crazy, but you saw someone in the real world do that and you're telling me about it and you were watching that and that was drama to you. So that was real life specificity and I think that we really respond to that. So if you can put that into your script, then people are gonna to respond to it even though it's a fictional character because we're still thinking, well, that's a real person even if we know it's not. That's just sort of the way that we empathize with, with characters. So the more specific and unique your characters are, 
even if it's just in little small ways, is gonna make them feel honest and real and truthful, I think. Did you have moments as a script reader where you'd read one page and be like, I'm done, this isn't holding my interest? There were definitely times as a reader that I would lose interest after page one. But my, my job was to finish it, so I had to. And it's really tough to get through a script when you're not interested in it personally, even if that's my assignment, that's my task. And so I used to kind of fight that and think that, oh, well, I'm a professional script reader, so I need to look at this and figure out what's working and what's not working and put my personal feelings about the script aside. But once I started realizing that my uh, emotional reactions to what was going on in the script is actually a huge asset because that's the thing that this script is trying to do. It's trying to connect with an audience. So once I started listening to myself and essentially using my emotions as the tool for what was going on, I could think, okay, well, I don't really care about this character, and then try to reverse engineer why I might not be caring about that character. And so that's where all the craft and the study would come in. But that first thing that really helped me in that job was honestly just me, David, as a human, am I caring about this person? Do I hate this person? Do I love it? Like, do I want them to get together with that guy at the end, or do I want them to not? And if I don't want them to get together, but the script I feel like is encouraging me to want them to get together, then there's definitely a gap there. And that gap is where all the craft work comes in. But first I had to listen to myself. How am I feeling about these people, about these characters? Can you ever hate or dislike a character and then toward the end realize actually you liked them, you misjudged them, maybe it was too close to home, whatever it was, and then you realize, actually, they're not that bad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's some of the best scripts I read. When I feel like I've been taken on a ride and I haven't seen the ride being built around me, then that's probably one of the best scripts I would read. And then on the flip side, have you ever read something where the characters seem good and then toward the end you realize even though they haven't done maybe horrible things, that they're not the best people or there's something, there's a character flaw that you dislike? Yeah, I think there are definitely times that I've read scripts where I liked the character off the bat and then disliked them as it went on. And I think the difference between that being intentional and that not and that feeling not being intentional is where the craft of screenwriting comes in. Is it possible to have a horrible first page and then it turns out the rest of the script is actually great? I don't think I've ever read a script that has a horrible first page and the rest is great. I have read scripts where I think the first page is horrible and then later on I realize like, oh, actually, here's what was going on. I did, the wool just got pulled over my eyes. That was actually a great first page. That was intentional misdirection. That's definitely happened to me. But I've never read a script where that first page was bad. I think it was bad. And then the rest is actually really great. As a viewer, have you ever loved a film or, or enjoyed it and wanted to go and look at the script and then realize, wow, the script really didn't live up to how the movie ended up turning out, which was fantastic. But somehow within the production, and with the actors, it just it just transformed. Mm -hmm. 
there are definitely times I've seen films that are great and I want to go, oh my God, I got to go check out that script. How, how was that written? And then I go and the script doesn't seem as great as the movie turned out to be. Conversely, I've also seen films that I thought were not really that great, but I had read the script and I thought that's a fantastic script. So I think it's definitely a collaborative process what we do and understand that we don't have control. We don't have full control over the project. And that sometimes works to our benefit because we can turn in something that maybe isn't quite delivering on the promise of what we thought this project could be, but someone else can deliver that promise. And that's part of what I'm banking on as a screenwriter, that someone else can make my work even better. But also sometimes, if I think I have something great, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate. And it's, it's tough to say who is ultimately responsible for the finished product when there's so many people that are collaborating together. And I think that's one of the great things about the job, but it, I think, can also be tough sometimes when you feel like, I have this really great thing, and then you see it and you go, okay, well, that's what it is. All right, that's the film. I think there are a number of reasons a film can succeed, and I think there are a number of reasons a film can not succeed, both commercially and artistically. And I think it's really difficult to tell exactly where things went wrong. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's sometimes tougher. Even if you think it's this one thing, that actually might be a symptom and the cause might actually be elsewhere. Interesting, okay. Okay, so it seems like it's this, but it's not actually that, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, a film or TV show just has so many moving parts and other than the projects that we're involved in directly, we can't see all of those moving parts. We just see the finished product. And it's really tough to diagnose the machine as a whole just from the thing that comes out of it. Yeah, you know, I saw a film just this weekend, I don't wanna say the name of it, because I loved it, and I don't wanna bash it, but in the beginning, it was too fast-paced, mm -hmm. and the editing, it was too, it was cut too fast, and I'm like, oh, I don't think I'm gonna like this. And then, bam, something clicked. Mm -hmm. It must have slowed down something. Either I got used to it, and I loved it, and I didn't want it to end. But yeah, I had that initial feeling like, oh, I'm not sure this is gonna work for me. And then it, it did, but I couldn't tell you what it was. It was just that process of sitting there, seeing it, and it just worked and I took myself out of being the theater goer and I, now I'm in the story. Yeah, it'll be interesting if you were to rewatch it, how you feel about those earlier things. Now that, now that you know coming down the line, you're gonna get really into it. So it will be That's interesting true. to see how that holds up on a second viewing. That's a good point. That's a good point, yeah, I'll have to see it. What makes a great story? I don't know if I know what makes a great story. I know I've, watched or read a great story when I'm moved by it, but I don't know if I'm always great at diagnosing, even for myself, why I responded to that. Films that I loved growing up or even just recently saw and loved, I think it's like, oh, it's because I loved this about the craft or the way they did this thing or this thing. But the more I reflect on it, the more I see, actually, I'm just responding to something in there. 
yes, there's great craft, but why I think that's a great film is probably more about me and what I'm connecting with in there. And I, I think that's always important to remember that what we do is uh, we're creating a bridge between us and the audience and it creates the, the audience has to meet us somewhere on that bridge. And some people are gonna meet you pretty far because they're connecting to that story in a deeper way based on their experiences than others. And that doesn't necessarily mean that your film or your script is bad. It just means that it didn't connect with those people. So you can make a really good, well-structured, well-crafted screenplay and it is not going to connect with everyone. But it will connect with some people and you have to have that craft to back it up, but that story behind it, you don't have as much control over how people respond to, I think. I think you said Raiders of the Lost Ark is your... I love Raiders of okay. the Lost Ark, okay. yeah. So is that sort of that adventure genre, is that your thing, so to speak, or? Um, I think my thing would be what I usually call grounded genre. So genre that has very real characters within it. I think probably why I respond to Raiders even now, I mean, I did, I did as a kid and I loved it, but I think why I continue to love it is because uh, Indiana Jones feels like a very real person in this huge genre film. And even though he's doing kind of insane genre stunts and all that stuff, he is really grounded and I think that's part of why I'm responding to it as opposed to other genre films that are a little bit more heightened in their characters. And so I'm most interested in my work in not a specific genre itself, but more taking those genres and, and really making sure that the characters within that film are grounded. So a very real person that might find themselves in a heightened circumstance, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy or adventure, but is going to act the way that we might react in that situation. And let's take another Harrison Ford film, The Fugitive. Mm -hmm. Would you say he was grounded in his role? I guess it's a totally different role. He's still going on an adventure. Would you say that's grounded as well? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think that's part of why Han Solo works so well in the Star Wars films is because he's a guy who is not believing in the force or any of this stuff. He's just a guy trying to make a living. It just happens to be smuggling things on a spaceship, but he's not interested in any of those necessarily big things, at least not at first in New Hope or anything like that, but he's a very grounded character. And Harrison Ford clearly has an aptitude for playing yes, those does. types of roles. <laughs> yes, he does. Mm -hmm. Little sense of humor, sarcasm, yeah. Yeah. Definitely believable, yeah. yeah. Are you a planner and an organizer? Yes, I am definitely a planner and organizer. I think that's what I'm probably most fulfilled doing is planning and organizing, which I guess makes sense because in a sense that's what a screenplay is, just a, an organized plan for an emotional journey. You know, I'm constructing a essentially a, a train that the audience is going to ride and I'm planning out every little minute detail of that ride 
and then trying to hide the audience from the rails in the car. And I'm, I'm using empathy as a misdirection for that. So I like knowing the destination and then constructing the path to it and then sort of hiding that path for the audience. Interesting. And so do you always know the ending when you start writing a story? I always know the ending when I start drafting. When I first am thinking about a story, I don't necessarily know the ending. And I'm scribbling a bunch of notes, what might be the ending, what might be a scene. I'm, I do a lot of note taking and a sort of loose free thought of what, whatever that I'm interested in this project, I'm just trying to collect as much as possible kind of out of my brain about what's interesting me about that thing. And then I'll do a treatment and I'll do that treatment over and over and over until it gets to a point where I feel like that's the story I wanna write. And then I'll go to a draft. So by the time I'm going to a draft, I know the ending, but I also know everything leading up to it. And so my first drafts, I can usually write pretty quick, but that's because I just spent months writing a treatment over and over and over, and it's different versions, and I'm tweaking different little things so that everything as a whole is fitting together. So in the draft, I can, I have a lot of room to explore those nooks and crannies, particularly when it comes to those character idiosyncrasies and just little lines of dialogue, because I know that as a whole, this story will arrive at this natural conclusion or what should feel like a natural conclusion. Obviously I've contrived it, but I feel good that I've set up the pieces so that it will necessarily arrive there and not elsewhere. Do you think planning and organizing is one of your strengths or are there times you wish you could be less of a planner? Uh, there are times when I wish that I was a little bit freer in my writing. I started taking improv classes as a tool to be less in my head and more present and just open to possibilities. And it's been really helpful, uh, both personally and then also in my writing. Interesting, okay. Because you would think most writers would have the opposite problem where they were just, you know, they just wouldn't, they weren't able to get on task. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I find that interesting. Uh, I think that I try to, <laughs> I try to plan the times in which I'm freely thinking. Okay. So this, you I'm, still plan then. Yeah. So I'm still planning, but in, in my notebook, I'm saying, all right, I'm gonna just freehand write this scene. And I don't know if it's gonna be in the movie. I don't even know who these characters are. Sometimes it's just like character A, character B, but I'm just writing whatever, because it doesn't have to exist within the film yet. So there's a little bit of a freedom there that allows me to just explore different things. And then when I'm taking that notebook, which has a bunch of different things, and I'm looking through, all right, what, after months of doing this, what am I still responding to? What am I still interested in? That scene uh, that actually, I thought I was interested in that, but I'm not. And so it's good because I don't have to, I don't, I'm not wasting time in the draft of writing that scene when it has to fit into a larger structure of the screenplay. I have that more abstractly. So I've planned that time to do that and to like let myself free associate 
and just kind of see where characters and lines of dialogue and set pieces and everything is going. And then taking that into a treatment, I get to pick and choose and now I get to organize all these thoughts that I've collected. I just happened to stumble upon your Twitter. I think you tweeted, if you're planning on writing a script in 2020 and you haven't started yet, start today, make a file, do a title page, write your first slug line, and then your first line of action. Tomorrow, you can jump right in. My, my intention writing that tweet, and I guess I should say that I wrote that on the 31st of December. So it, it's, if you're planning on starting a screenplay in 2020, start it in 2019 because when you sit down and it's just it's just this vacuum of blankness, there's just this sort of feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have so many possibilities and I just don't know what to choose. But as soon as you get something down, regardless of what it is, I think things just really open up because all of a sudden your possibilities start to narrow and there's a lot less time spent in evaluating these possibilities as opposed to these possibilities. So there's just an effective way to continue moving forward because you can always take those possibilities, you can take them later and trans translate them to other ones. You, we're allowed to rewrite. So just get it going and don't worry about facing the blank page. And so that was my advice of just, just write something down in 2019 and it's gonna set you up in 2020 for success insofar as you will be writing a screenplay. Don't even worry about what it is yet if that's what you're afraid of. Do you think that's what stops a lot of people? Because it seems like this monumental, I'm writing a screenplay and now, oh, am I gonna take on this title as a screenwriter? Is it going to be a legitimate title? Just just set it up, don't, don't overthink it, just do it. Is, is take some of the fear out of it to do it this way? Yeah, I think sitting down and just typing something or writing something longhand just gets you moving. And I think that movement is just a good habit to be in. And I would say that is more important, especially for beginning screenwriters to, to learn that it doesn't have to be great, it doesn't have to be perfect, it doesn't have to be even what it will eventually be. It's not going to be what it will eventually be. So don't worry about it being that. Just get moving. It's like training at the gym. It's like if you want to lift 200 pounds, you first have to lift 100 pounds. If you want to lift 100 pounds, you first have to lift 50 pounds. Like just, and not that I can lift 200 pounds, um, but I'm just saying you have to start somewhere and that where you start is not the destination. So just start and you can go back and figure it out later. And also too, is it, is it less intimidating when you think about, wait a minute, I'm not actually gonna be writing in like full sentences sometimes? For yeah. A script? Yeah, I think there's definitely a freedom in the way screenplays are written that we are not beholden to strict prose, punctuation and grammar and all that stuff. You have a fair amount of freedom. There is a very clear formatting for screenplays, but that formatting allows for, I think, a tremendous amount of freedom that once you are comfortable with, I think really allows an authorial voice to come through. Was that something that was a surprise to you that you didn't realize, like, wait a minute, I'm not writing an actual novel here. I don't have to 
make sure that I'm completely grammatically correct with something. I can just do sort of this cryptic, how's it going? Eh, yeah. You know, I mean, just, you know, the, in terms of the, the conversation and, and... Yeah, I remember the first screenplay I wrote that was in perfect, all the action lines were perfect prose, and I had a table read of it, and it was, it was horrible because it was the slowest read of my life. And afterwards, a friend who was participating in the read came up to me and she said, your story is fantastic. I think this is great. This, this could be a, a, a name maker for you, but you have, to, you have to change every single action line. I was like, well, oh, okay. She's like, yeah, just, it needs to be like a screenplay. And so I had this story, but I didn't have a good screenplay. And so I went back in and changed, I didn't make a single story choice different, but I just changed all the action lines. And that was the screenplay that has gotten me more noticed than any of my other work. Okay. Hmm. Wow, that was a nice friend. Yeah. Was this table read here in LA? Yeah. Great. Yeah, I had a table read with friends in LA that just put put together. Um, I have a small group that meets semi regularly whenever someone has something. They say who's available and when are you available? Can we get together for a read? And it's a combination of actors and writers. And so we'll give the actors the bigger parts and kind of use the writers to fill in some of the smaller parts and hear it out loud and then immediately just sort of get feedback from everyone. Are they doing the feedback? after the script is read through or in the moment? After it's read through. So we hear it once completely, and usually record it so I can hear it back. Um, I'll also record the feedback so that I can hear that back, um, which is also something I'd recommend is just being used to recording everything. Because if you have to pause to take notes every time, you're not gonna be present with the person that you're talking to. You'll also miss things and you'll go back later and that note you won't be able to make sense of. But you can hear it back and you hear exactly how they said it. And now, oh, that's right, that's what they said. So definitely record everything. I bet that's really powerful to hear your own work spoken by someone else. Mm -hmm. It's great, you'll hear a line that you go, I think that line is gonna kill, it's great. And then it's just great reading, but the line falls flat, so the line is bad. Also, you'll hear things that you know, a line that was just functional, like you needed that line to get from A to B and it's there and you think, oh, it's not great, but then someone reads it and it, all of a sudden like that line pops more than any of the others. And you're like, well, I don't know if that line is necessarily great, but clearly there's something that this actor has found with this character that allows that line to pop. And figure out what that is because there are gonna be opportunities elsewhere in the script to use whatever that actor found in that character to make sure that that is in every other scene that that character's in. You had a tweet recently about action lines and it got a lot of traction, mm -hmm. a lot of people engaged. Can we start with what action lines are aimed to accomplish? I think that action lines are aimed to accomplish two things. Tell you what is happening, but also how we see what is happening. And you can use words to sort of secretly cue your reader into how they should be seeing what's happening. And I think one of the coolest parts of screenwriting is that we can use words to cue in the reader's brain how they see what's happening, 
even without telling them how they should see what's happening. Let's see, what kind of an example? So if we were to say she entered the room with a sarcastic grin or she crept in from this, I don't know, I'm, I'm you help me out? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I need some help here. I think you can, if you want to start a line, a toothy grin spreads across her face as the doorknob clicks and she enters the room. The first thing I'm gonna see is that toothy grin. So even though I didn't say close up on mouth, the reader will probably just see a mouth grinning because I haven't told them yet that this is a room. So they're only thinking in terms of what they've been told because that's just the way our brain works. I'm not gonna imagine something that no one has cued me to imagine. But if I wanted to say the room sits vacant as a door opens and she enters smiling, you're already in the room and you've, I've told the reader that there's a room, which a room is probably going to cue a wide shot and then the door opens and she enters and she has the grin. Now it's the same action in both, but I have used different words to hopefully cue the reader into how I think they should be seeing it. And I haven't told the director necessarily how to shoot it, but I've suggested what I think might be best for the story. And then if a director takes that and says, that's great, that gives me an idea for something even stronger, and they use a wide shot to get what I was trying to achieve, even better. Because I'm not telling them how to do their job, I'm just suggesting it. But either way, the director, the actress, the production designer, everyone knows that all we need to do is just get this actress entering the room smiling. I've just suggested what I think is the best way to visually tell that. But even if none of that gets across, she's still entering the room smiling. And that's as far as I need to take it, I think. So the one where she's smiling or the toothy grin, which one do you think is, I like the toothy grin in some sense because that keeps me like, hmm, toothy as in showing the canines? Is it like a little more mischievous or is it she's overjoyed? I think it would depend on the context and that, those are the kind of choices that you get to make as a screenwriter when you're deciding on about how to tell the audience how to see what is in your screenplay. So if it's really important to me that I, this is an establishing shot of this character and I want the first thing the audience to see when they first meet this character is her toothy grin, then I'm going to want to cue that with those words. But if this is not necessarily that important or there's other considerations or other reasons that that's, I don't want to draw too much attention to this character and her grin, I might not do that. And I might just have her enter the room from the wide because it's more important that the room is vacant. That's the creative choice that I want to have in the screenplay. Perhaps this is an apartment that this woman is entering where she lived with her, her husband and she's had a good day so she enters smiling but we already know it's vacant and we see her face drop. So it's more important that we see the apartment vacant first. But I could also flip that. We could be on her with a toothy grin, uh, maybe a, just a big smile, but I can say big smile, she opens the door and finds an empty apartment her face falls. So I can basically, even though it's the same action, I can swap those two visually with my words 
and actually create different effects in the audience. In one of your tweets, you mentioned um, writing action lines with special attention paid to word order and what you call anchoring nouns. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is an anchoring noun? An anchoring noun is a, a term that I made up because I didn't know what else to call it. But for me, it's the first noun that you encounter that communicates what sort of shot you should be seeing the action I'm describing. So if I say an orchard sprawls across the valley, I haven't said wide shot, but orchard to me is the anchoring noun that anchors you visually into a wide shot because you don't picture an orchard in close up because I've told you it's an orchard, it's a big thing. If I say an apple sits on a branch, then the anchoring noun would be apple and I've kind of cued you into a closer shot, even though I haven't said camera close up on or anything like that. So those nouns and where you place them are just what I call anchoring nouns because it anchors you to the image that I want you to picture in your head. And does that also kind of correspond with grounded stories, grounded cinema in some sense? Because it's sort of... I'm, I'm... Maybe there's no correlation, I'm just... I'm not sure if it... Uh, <laughs> okay, it's all right. Well, because to me, this is like a, like a... It's just like a little craft thing and depending yeah, on how people cool. use it. Um, nice. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tool in the toolkit, and I think people can employ it to any level of stories. It can be an incredibly heightened, uh, not grounded, like fun space romp, but you can still use anchoring nouns for heightening some of that craziness. What is visual writing in a screenplay? To me, visual writing is writing with the notion that this is something to be seen. So using words that in my mind are visually sticky. So a character walking across the room doesn't evoke a very strong visual thing for me, but a character leaping across the room, I guess that seems more visual to me because it's just a more of a specific action. So. I can picture a leap that's very specific and it's different than a walk. Okay, yeah, this walk sort of falls flat, but with leaping, there's more of a, an urgency to it, whether it's a positive thing or a negative thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, that. I don't know if there's more of an urgency to it, but there's a specificity to it. A character that shuffles across the room, I can picture that, and I can picture that very differently than a leap but a walk kind of falls flat because we just see people walk every day. So there's nothing inherently unique about that action. And if the character's just walking and there's, they should not be doing anything else, then I think use walk. It's not that you have to use something else, but if there's anything you can give me that is just a little more specific than walk, I'm gonna be able to picture it, I think a little bit easier. So if you don't want to call attention to the walk, if it's not really a major thing in the story, then just maybe keep it something like that, a walk, something more bland. But if there's a point to what you're trying to make or this character's going to be doing something or setting it up for something, then that's where the more, the, the more visual, the better? 
Yeah, and I think the more specific, the better. Every noun and verb in your script is an opportunity to tell the audience something. And the more specific you can be with your nouns and verbs, the less you have to use adjectives and adverbs, which saves you space. And so a character reluctantly walks is more words than saying a character shuffles across the room or a character pads across the room. Oh, I like where this is going. This is great. Yeah, the more specific you can be with your nouns and your verbs, the less adjectives and adverbs you'll have to use in your screenplay. Do you see that a lot with newer writers? I think with newer writers, the thing that I see the most is more words rather than less. So overwritten? I think overwritten might be a way to put it. How does someone prep for a spec script? I think there are as many ways to prep for a spec script as there are people writing spec scripts because it's, it's not an assignment, so you can do kind of whatever you want to do. So I know some people that just immediately dive in because there's no pressure, so they can discover it on the page. I know some people that research for months just to figure out what they want to write about. They have a topic, but they don't know the story within it, but they know they want to write about this one thing. So I think my advice to anyone starting a spec script would be to don't assume that your process has to be what anyone else's is. Figure out what you are going to benefit from the most and just do that. Have you ever heard of a screenwriter writing a great script without an outline? Yeah, I've heard of screenwriters writing great scripts without an outline. Um, none specifically come to mind, but I know I've heard those stories. I, I don't think I could ever do it. Um, I'm still trying to write a great script with an outline, so <laughs> uh, we'll see. But I think that everyone's process is unique to them. And I think the best writers have found a process that is theirs and gets the best results. And I think that only comes through engagement with yourself and how you're working and what your output is doing and what you're getting out of various steps of your process. And there is no one way to write a screenplay. There is one way for you to write a screenplay. And I think figuring out how to do that is just as valuable as writing the screenplay if you want to have a career. Do you start every screenplay out with an outline? I first start with a notebook. Once I've decided, okay, this is a project that I want to write, I buy a notebook for it. I usually try to sort of theme the notebook. So if it's like a old like pirate adventure, I'll try to make it look, I'll find a notebook that looks like that. Um, and then I will just use that notebook to just freehand write anything I'm interested in in regards to this screenplay, whether it's just like a very vague idea of, I think this thing should happen, or I'm writing 
dialogue for a scene that might exist in the screenplay. I'm sort of filling that notebook up and I don't really have a timeline at that point. So I'm talking about spec scripts for me. I'm just writing it, writing it, writing it until hopefully a story will coalesce. And once I feel like that story's coalesced, I'll try to write that story as succinctly as possible. Essentially, I'm trying to write the logline for it. And if that logline is engaging to me and I think will move me, if I think that story that is told, even in that little you know, one sentence, is moving enough to me, I'll try to take that sentence and I'll turn it into a paragraph. And if that paragraph is moving, then I'll move on. If it's not, I will continue to maybe reshape that paragraph. And then that paragraph will become a page, that page will become multiple pages into sort of a treatment. And then at the treatment, that's when I think I'm doing most of my story work. I'm writing that over and over, and I will do that for a couple months maybe, depending on how often I can work on it. And once that treatment is really resonating with me and is a story that again will move me, then I can take it and start writing the draft. And so it almost feels like that draft is more like a translation project than writing something new. I'm taking something that exists in full prose writing and then putting it into a screenplay format. And so all of the little things that exist in a screenplay, that's when I'm putting those things in. Because my story, I feel, I already feel incredibly comfortable about. So I don't have to discover any of the story things. I get to discover all those little things, all those little nooks and crannies that happen when a story is now gonna be put on the screen and I'm translating it there. And then I'll get that first draft and then from that I'm moving into rewrites and polishes and all those sort of conversations. But I think it's helped me because I feel like my story usually doesn't go through too many significant changes once I'm on that draft, once I'm in the screenplay software and, and writing it. Because all those changes, I've hit all those dead ends, all those things that I thought were great that are not, all those things that I was excited about that didn't end up doing anything for me, I've already figured that out in that treatment process. So I don't outline so much as try to just tell a story and tell it fuller and fuller until that's a full rich story and then translate it to a screenplay, if that makes sense. It does, so it almost sounds like this little notebook that you buy that's themed, mm -hmm. it's like a scrapbook. Yeah. Okay, so then you're putting, it's almost like a diet, part diary, part scrapbook, you're just putting little notes and it's like, it's like filling up and then by the time you get to the screenplay formatting, it, it's already its own world in that little book. Yeah, it already exists and I have this full treatment that is pretty detailed and it tells a story. So it's not an outline, because I, I so I don't have to discover how this character is going to convince this other character of what they want because I've done that in the treatment. But now I get to, in the screenplay, figure out what are the exact words that she's using to convince this character about what she wants or something like that. So a lot of the work is, um, for me, compared to how I think uh, some other people I've heard process, some of that work is kind of split where it's story stuff here and then sort of screenplay stuff over here when I'm in, in the software and, and doing all the screenplay formatting and stuff like that. 
Are there any pictures in the little notebook? Do you ever, I mean, to help flesh it out or no? Um, <laughs> Stick figures? Or no, no, I, okay, do, I actually don't use pictures. I think it's because I'm a, a horrible artist and um, I don't do clippings or anything like that. I think in every way I've ever been creative, it's always been in words and ideas. And so anytime I've ever tried to translate any of my creative ideas through visual stuff, it just never works. And so I've just, I've just, I think, given up on that for now. Maybe at some point I will try to learn how to draw or something like that. But it's probably why I do, I'm a lot more active on Twitter than I am on Instagram because that's just where I feel the most comfortable. Sure, sure. And well, Instagram's also very personal and like, hey, this is what I had for lunch. And, you know, there's a great photo of it. And yeah, <laughs> here's me, you know, with so and so. And some people that, you know, it's just they're they're just better sharing links to articles or talking about writing or something. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever go back and look at those notebooks? During the process or afterwards, even years later, like, oh, wow, this is this notebook for this. So this notebook became this thing. Yeah, I mean, I have them on my shelf and I can see, because they're all different, I can be like, oh, that's that project, that's that one. And every now and then I might flip through one and like, oh yeah, I had that idea for that scene that never ended up anywhere, but there's something I love about this idea, this, this scene, and it didn't have a home in this project, I thought it did, uh, but maybe it'll go elsewhere. Or I'll see something and I think to myself, why did I ever think that was interesting? Like, who was I at that point? that wrote that little scrap of an idea and why was I interested in that? So it's not just a useful tool creatively, but personally it acts as a little bit of sort of uh, like an idea diary of what I was interested in at the time that I wrote that thing. I think it's cool too that you have it in the theme of whatever the project is. Yeah, and I definitely have notebooks that are empty, but I was like, that's a cool notebook, but I can't use it yet because I don't have an idea that fits <laughs> the feeling of that notebook. Um, and sometimes it, the notebook itself will get me going, oh, I should write a fantasy novel because that notebook looks like a fantasy novel or something like that. Yeah, I forget which author it was that said, don't buy really pretty notebooks to put like your feelings in or creative write whatever because you're going to be too precious because it's so beautiful. If mm -hmm. you buy something that it's not even you don't care too much about, it's like the spiral notebook from the 99 cent store, you're just going to be like, cool, I can put whatever I want. I can just regurgitate it all here and I don't have to be precious with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's just a thought. But you, there's so many beautiful notebooks that you see at <laughs> bookstores if people go to bookstores anymore. But I remember back in the day, you know, and it would almost be too intimidating to writing something that's leather bound and... I feel that way. I, I keep a personal journal and it's a lovely leather bound journal. It was a gift from my sister years ago and um, I am a little bit intimidated to write because the notebooks for my screenplays, I'm just collecting scraps of ideas and I feel like I'm just kind of spilling my brain out onto it. But my personal journal, I feel like, what if someone finds this and reads it? I want it to be thoughtful and interesting, and right. I want I want to appear smart, even though it's for me. I'm still thinking somehow about how this might be seen by others, 
And it's because this notebook feels like it's something that would be read by others. Whereas those other notebooks from my screenplays, it's like, if that is read by others, that's great because it's, it's not supposed to be a thing. It's not supposed to be readable. But um, if this diary would be something that would be read, I would be terrified. And even though it's not, I'm still terrified. And I think it's because it's a really nice journal. Sure, sure. And it's not, you, you want to write in the King's English and yeah. the plumed pen or something, you know, yes. or the other one, you put whatever, profanity, just whatever thoughts. Yes. My not hand, that you would be doing that. No. <laughs> My handwriting is also <laughs> terrible. And so I also think about, I need to write legibly in this notebook because what if someone discovers it years from now and reads it? I want them to not think I couldn't write good handwriting. Sure, sure. That's interesting. Yeah. What moves you when you're writing? I think what moves me is seeing real people go through something. And I don't know. I'll have to really sort of think think about it. That's a very, that's not a good answer. Hmm. Well, that's why I think a lot of us go to the movies and, and choose certain types of movies. Mm -hmm. Some people just want to be entertained and they want a happy ending, a neat little package and, and others, they want to see people go through something. Yeah. Right? I'm trying to, but I'm, I'm trying to think of what I want to see people go through. And that's what I think. That's why I think it's not a good. It's not that it's a bad answer, but I don't think it's as accurate as it could be because I think that things that move me are real people in extraordinary situations going through something that is incredibly human. And I think that might be why I love Shakespeare so much, particularly the histories because I will never be king of England, but when I see the king of England talk about what it's like to be up at night, and I know what it's like to be up at night and dealing with something, then I'm now connected in a way to what it might be like to be the king of England. It's just the thing that keeps me up at night is way different than the thing that keeps him up at night. But the fact that we are both have this same experience tells me that that's another human that is going through something that I go through and we're connected through empathy and I find it very moving when I see people in these situations that I will never find myself in but if I was in that situation, I might react the same way because that reaction is a very human reaction. That's what moves me. Right. This is off on a tangent a bit, but just in watching Masterclass, they had one on political leadership. Mm. It's not necessarily a class I would <laughs> gravitate toward, but it was just really interesting and I, I love the framing of it and the way it looked. And they just talked about how a lot of the great presidents forced themselves, Abe Lincoln forced himself to go to the theater, different people to, to get out of that mindset because mm -hmm. they were so focused on what to do with this war or that war. And they were criticized for it, mm -hmm. but they needed that time away from it because it did keep them up at night. Mm -hmm. So that just reminded me 
of that, where they had to get away from the problem of war and these different things for a short time so that they could come back and try to solve or deal with it. Yeah. They needed that escapism. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, art and art that is storytelling forces us to engage with ideas of ourselves in situations that we might not ever find ourselves in. But when we're forced to think about that, it opens up our minds in ways that we can't get because we don't we just don't get that experience in the real world. So I think that we part of the reason we go to the theater and we go to the movies and we watch TV is even if it's subconscious, it's so that we can experience these lives that we would never experience. But because that's a human life and we're humans, in a way we get to expand our minds in ways that we need to. Do you have a writing routine that you follow? I have, I have two answers for if I have a writing routine that I follow. And one is, yes, I have a writing routine. Two is I don't always follow that writing routine. The best work I've ever done was when I followed that routine. But for some reasons, I, I don't follow it all the time. And it's tough. And sometimes it's because of just what else I have going on in my life. That routine that I really liked and worked for me didn't, um, it, it's, it's just no longer sort of an option for, for what I have going on right now. And other times it's just tough to just sit down at the desk and write, even though I know I already have a plan to do that. It's just tough. You know, you don't want to. And so sometimes I don't. I fail at sitting down and writing. But when I was following it, it was great. And when I do follow it, it's great because it forces me to write. And the routine was basically I would get up and two hours in the morning I would write. And then that was it for the day. As far as official writing time, I would still pull out a notebook or if I was really inspired, I might open the computer and, and write some more. But those two hours, I would set the timer and I would write. At the end of that two hours, I would stop, no matter where I was, no matter whether I felt like I could keep going for another two, or I was like, thank God, I just I barely made those two hours. That felt like a slog. Um, but having it be time-based told me that it doesn't matter what I've written, as long as I've shown up and I have written. And so some days, those two hours would produce you know, 10 pages, other days it would produce one. But I was measuring whether or not I was doing my job by the time I was spending doing it and not necessarily the page count or the word count. Because I think that so much of what we do is up here and it doesn't always translate to the pages. And so that one page that I wrote over that two hours, that might have been really difficult and was a lot of thinking and feeling and kind of moving through what was going on there. And that one page is great output for those two hours. And those other 10 pages I wrote the day before might not be great. So I shouldn't measure my progress with what was going on the page, but more about the fact that I could sit down, show up, and do the job. Does active or passive voice come into play with screenwriting? Or is it just, that's more with, with prose? 
I think active and, and passive voice doesn't come up in screenwriting for me. I don't know if that's because I'm just not thinking about that as much. Um, so I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, just because sometimes, you know, they say, well, don't write in passive voice. And I just wasn't sure with the rules of screenwriting. Is it, is it a faux pas to, to write in passive voice for, you know, a screenplay, even if it's just little, like, action line, but it's not? I think that one of the things that's great about screenwriting is that there are no hard rules. So if there's a reason that the passive voice should be used here for an effect, it's permissible. Like you can do whatever you want. And so I think understanding why this action line is better in a passive voice as opposed to an active voice or vice versa is more important than adhering to any sort of you should never write in the passive voice or you should never do this because for every rule that was laid out there's a bunch of examples of it being broken and broken successfully and i think you can break it successfully because you you know why breaking it is going to produce a greater effect than adhering to it and one of the freedoms of the screenplay format is that you have so much room to break all these rules. If someone comes to you and finds out you're a screenwriter and you know the industry and says, you know what, I do this other job in my life, but I have this screenplay that I wrote, I know it's amazing. How do I get it to the right person to get this made? I know this thing's amazing. There's no doubt about it. So just, do you know any names that I can just get this screenplay to? So I can have it made. Is is the question? Do I have know any names? Because the answer would be no. Uh, well, okay, <laughs> no. There, there you go. So that that this takes off so, that box. So back, right? This exact thing. This happened to me at my sister's wedding. Oh, okay. Yeah, That's I, weird because I was thinking about it last night. What if someone came to you? My sister's wedding last year. It was near the end of the reception, and I, I had given a speech. I was the man of honor, nice. and it was a, a I think a, a decent speech. So a lot of people. Like, oh, do you, are you a comedian? Or do you, I just, oh, I write screenplays, so I, I write a little bit. And um, like, oh, okay. And I think maybe other people had mentioned that. And so later, this guy who I had never met before in my life comes up to me and he says, I have a great screenplay. I think it's really, it's, it's perfect for, for you know, he, this audience and here. So, you know, what can we do with it? How funny. And I was literally thinking like, what, what would happen if that, someone did that to you? Yeah, and you're sort of <laughs> taken aback because, um, it's funny because it's never happened to me here in LA where you think people would be talking about that more. And so I'm not even in that kind of mode. And near the very end of the reception, it's been you know a big, full, long day. And Everyone's tired, but still loose from all their drinks and everything. And <laughs> this guy who I'd never met, he's not part of my extended family or anyone. I, I could not figure out how he was there at the wedding because he approached me alone. And he says, I have this, I have this screenplay. He, he didn't have it, but um, he, he says, I have a screenplay and it's, I think it's fantastic. And I think it's great. And I, what, what can I do with it? And I said, well, you should talk to anyone you know in the the film industry that you know well that might be able to do a favor for you. But I think the thing to 
remember in those types of situations, if you're the one approaching someone, is that it is a favor. So you should ask people that would be willing to stick their neck out for you because they know you. This man was a stranger to me and reading a screenplay is a fair amount of work, even just from a time perspective. So even asking for that is a favor from a friend. And I, I didn't know that guy. And wow. so that wasn't something I felt comfortable doing because if I just accepted screenplays from every stranger that approached me, I would spend my life reading the screenplays of strangers. And so, yeah, I would, I would just say maybe make sure that you know who you're approaching if you're going to say I have a screenplay for you. That's really interesting because it was late at night and I, I posed this question to David and I said I wanted to ask you, David, uh -huh. that imagine someone came up to you. I, I envisioned it more at a restaurant and just said like, oh, hey, I do this for a living. I'm an accountant, whatever. Yeah. But I have a screenplay that I've written and I know it's fantastic. I know it's going to be awesome. What's the next step to get this thing made? And so that was... I asked David his opinion, and he gave me this very long, interesting answer. I would never have thought of that answer, but I think it, it's a touchy thing because Pete, and, and the last thing he ended was with, it's probably not ready to be made yet. Yeah, and I think, um, uh, depending on, on whether you use that answer or not, or you're <laughs> able to use parts of it, because, it, he, because the guy who approached me was pretty aggressive, it sounded like a bad idea, and I was uncomfortable in the situation. So I mean, that's all, all the context. I think if someone came up to me and they were sincere and respectful and was not doing it on the, the day of my sister's wedding, I, w I would probably give a different answer. So let me think about what I would, uh, th that was kind of a, a, a bad version of someone approach, but if someone does that and they're, they're genuinely, they, and the, if their question is, what is my next step? That I would, I'd happily answer. Um, it's when someone, it's, it's, it's the fact that I was approached and they said, what, you know, can you do something oh, for so me? What can you do? Yeah, and I think that's, that's the big thing that, that really changes that conversation. If someone's asking for advice and they can ask respectfully and they say, I don't do this for a living. I am, like you said, an accountant or, or something else, but I have a really great screenplay idea. I would probably ask who else thinks it's a great idea. And if they don't have any answer to that other than themselves, I would say then you're not sure yet and you should give it to people to read. If, if other people are saying it's great, even if they're at first friends and family, then go to the next step and give it to other people. Look online for uh, you know, message boards and, and on Twitter, people are always trading scripts back and forth. Trade it with someone who has no stock in their personal relationship with you and is willing to tell you if it's great or not. And you can tell them, hey, I don't need any notes. I just wanna know if this is good and they can give you a one note reply of yes, I think it's good, or no, I think it needs some work. And if you continually get people saying, yes, I think this is good, eventually 
it will find the hands of someone who can get it into the hands of someone who wants to do something with it. But I'd say for just recognize that everyone else working in Los Angeles and trying to work in Los Angeles and elsewhere in, within the industry also has a screenplay that they think is good. And they have written at least five times as many as you. Now you might have a unique perspective because you're not, if, if you are an accountant for a huge firm and you have some really interesting stories from that firm, you might have a good screenplay about that. Um, does that necessarily mean the screenplay you have written is a good screenplay about that? I'm not sure. But you have a perspective, but you just might not have the screenwriting craft. So you might want to partner up with someone who does that you trust. And it might take some time to build those relationships and to find those people. But screenwriting is not a hobby that usually turns into just a success. It might happen, but I think it's very rare. So if you have a screenplay that you think is good, there's a shot that it might go somewhere, but it might just exist as a really good screenplay for you. I think it's interesting too what you said. It's not so much don't approach somebody and say, what can you do for me? Do it from the what can I do to get it out there, not put the onus on you. Yeah, I think asking for advice, I'm always happy to, to talk about. And I think Whenever someone asks me for advice, I always end up asking a lot of questions because there is no one way to do anything in Hollywood. So it's always about kind of, well, how are you, where are you right now and what is the best possible avenue to achieve what you want to achieve? So I'll always end up just asking a lot of questions before figuring out what I would recommend. And that I'll end up talking forever because everyone loves to give advice. It's very flattering to be asked for advice. It's not very flattering to be asked to do something for someone. And so figuring out that which one of those conversations it's going to be, I think is on my end crucial to figuring out how much I want to really engage with this person or maybe shut it down before uh, the ask is coming down the line. I have a sort of uh, self policy of never uh, asking anyone to read my work in, in like social settings. I have friends that we have understandings with, hey, when you have something, can you send it to me for notes? And um, if you have something, I'll give you notes. Um, but that understanding already exists before I'm gonna send it to them. But if I'm meeting with someone for coffee to talk about my script and they haven't offered to read it, I will just not, ask them to read it. Now, maybe there are places and times that I could have done that and it would have been fine. But more often than not, I get asked, can I read your script? So I found that I don't actually need to ask. I can just have a genuine conversation with someone. And if they're interested, they will ask. And if they're not interested, then I would have been wasting my time and theirs to ask them to read it anyway. If, they, if I tell them kind of what my story's about, and they want to read it, they're going to ask for it. You don't have to go around offering your screenplay. 
if you have a good idea and you say, hey, I have an idea for a screenplay, it's kind of about this, and I'm interested in it, I probably will ask for it. If they're interested and they have the bandwidth to read it, they will probably ask for it. If you ask them to read it, it already puts them a little bit on their heels because now it, it feels like an assignment and well, I wasn't necessarily interested in it, so I don't know. Now I have to gauge like, is it worth in this conversation having this little bit of tension where I have to now say no, I, I don't wanna read it right now or I don't know, come back to me when you think it's ready. Um, you can usually get a sense from someone of how they're talking about it and where they might be both in their career as a screenwriter or in their uh, their project itself, kind of where they are in the process and if it's something that you want to do. And if it is at a point where I'm interested in reading it, I would, I would ask for it. And I think that in most of my experiences, people have treated me the same. I rarely have to offer my work explicitly for someone to ask for it. And if someone doesn't ask for it, it's probably wouldn't have been in their wheelhouse anyway. Yeah, and maybe it's also too like an, an industry protocol, like the unspoken sort of thing where maybe when people are new to LA or just to the world of screenwriting in general, it's just pitching whoever. But I've seen people in industry events just be just brutally aggressive and it's a turnoff. I've watched them with other people with producers and different things and well how do I get in contact with you oh well look I'm on the internet you can just look me up you know and they're just like hounding this person and I'm thinking I don't think this is working for them but I could be wrong but I think there's a there's just a way to do it and I think it takes time to know that, that that's really not the avenue yeah I think there's some people who have figured that out they're they're charming they're able to get in there and get people to read their work um, I am not one of those people and so I just once I stopped trying to figure out how to get people to read my work and just be a little bit more open and conversational about my work I ended up getting a lot more read requests from that because I think people felt like I'm not trying to sell them on anything I'm just talking and of the people that have read my work since then those relationships and conversations have all been better because it's all people who have reached out to, for, to me to read my work. So they're not, it wasn't something that was forced upon them. So it's naturally, I'm gonna have a better success rate if that's what you wanna call it, of people that are resonating with what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think if people feel safe with boundaries and they, they see that you're not gonna just totally hound them about something, mm -hmm. I think they're more apt to be open to. Yeah, and I will say I've been that other person that is not getting read and I feel like I have to get something in someone's hands and I mean it's, it, it comes, uh, it feels desperate because it is a little bit desperate and I've been in those desperate situations where I feel like I have not had any screenwriting traction for months and I totally sympathize with everyone that's in that situation and you, everyone will, I, I've done it, I will probably do it again. Everyone's been there. It's not, it's something that we can, I think, work on, but I think it's human to be desperate for validation, but also for getting things going for your career. 
Right. But if someone's in the restroom and you're like waiting outside trying to pitch them, I think maybe that's, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you're doing that, but I've heard of other people where that's happened. Yeah, I probably wouldn't wait outside a restroom. I would not, <laughs> in any situation, I would not advise that. Or they're at a dinner with family, and, and I've, I've seen that as well, and someone approaches them and, you know, forgive me, I just need a moment of your time. And I, I think that's, that's, that's a real touchy thing to, to do that, you know? Yeah, and I think one of the things to do to avoid situations like that is to try and attend as many industry events as possible because people are gonna be a lot more open in those situations because someone that is there is there to engage with that part of their life. Someone who is at dinner with family is not in a professional setting and they're not there to talk about your work. They're there to be with their family. So if you want to be in the situations where you can approach people and talk about what you're working on and meet people, then you need to be attending those events and not chasing people down in other areas of their lives. Right, because it could actually be a fantastic script and now you've lost that opportunity right. because the approach was wrong. So yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think also putting the relationship over your specific project is also something that's really important because you might have a great script and you make a really bad first impression and they're not going to work want to work with you on that great script. But if you make a good first impression and your script isn't that great, but they really like you and they say, this one might not be for me, but keep in touch. It was really fun talking with you. Then there might be something down the line when you do have a great script or you have a great script and it's just not something that they're interested in right now. But you make that bad first impression and you burn that bridge. So a relationship is something that can pay dividends over time and also is just more honest and treats people as ends and not means. So always prioritize that over, I need you to read this right now. I need, I gotta get this made, it's so good. What's the most amount of time you've put into a screenplay? And was it worth it? The most amount of time I put into a screenplay, it's tough because I haven't measured exactly how much T time I've worked on it, but I know that the longest from idea to a finished draft was five years. And that's just to the end of the screenplay. That screenplay is still sitting there, not, you know, no film has been made out. So that's just five years to a, what is for me a finished draft. Um, sort of working on it sporadically, sometimes every day, other times it kind of sat dormant for a few months and I worked on other projects or whatever. Um, but that's the longest of anything I've done uh, five years. Why did it take so long? Maybe that's not a long time? Maybe. No, um, I think it took a while and it was r written in sort of fits and starts because it was one of the first projects I started once I started seriously writing. So I didn't know yet, not necessarily, not that I didn't know what I was doing because at times I, st I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing when I'm writing a screenplay, but I didn't know a process that worked for me in terms of creating something. So I just started writing. I had a loose outline and I just started writing 
and I just kept hitting dead end after dead end, or I would figure something out that didn't feel like a dead end, but I just, it wasn't interesting to me. So it just wasn't, nothing was happening. And so I essentially had to start that project almost like I'd continue to start it over and over because I didn't have a, a process yet that I felt comfortable with. And I didn't really know what I was interested in writing about. I had a story idea, but I didn't know why that was a story idea that interested me. And moving forward, it was always important to me that when I was writing something, I always understood before I really got into it why I am interested in that story and why I'm going to take that across the finish line. And that's been a really useful tool to help me with other story ideas that I've had that I think would be great movies. I, th I think they're so cool, but I'm maybe not the one to write that, so I shouldn't go after that yet. But there's still something that might interest me, so I'll keep it in there and at some point I go, oh, I'm, that's what I'm interested in. That's the theme that comes out of that story that resonates with me, and now I'm ready to start digging into that. It sounds like that story has a lot of meaning for you. The, the initial idea? Um, it, it, now it does. It, it didn't at first because I didn't have anything. But once I discovered that, then I was able to finish it and take it across the finish line and understand what I was interested in writing about. Okay. Do you think you'll have it made at some point or... Is it something where it's almost, you know, certain stories people are like, you know, like you said, this uh -huh. isn't the story for me to make, but mm -hmm. it, it's a great idea. Um, I think at this point, it's a story that I'd love to see made, but in terms of where I am in my career right now, it's a very big project. This was at a time when I was writing before considerations of my career, what is the best story that I can write and get into the hands of producers I know and have relationships with. So this project just isn't a good fit for the people I know right now. And so it's still just kind of sitting dormant. And it's, it's been out to a few people to read for feedback and thoughts, um, but nothing has really happened with it yet. What's the fastest you've ever written a full screenplay? The fastest I've ever written a full screenplay was about three and a half weeks. And that was writing about four hours a day. And on the road trip that I went on figuring out where I was going to move when I knew that I was gonna leave Atlanta and pursue screenwriting, I was lucky enough that a friend offered his family's cabin just outside of Reno. He said, no one is, no one's there right now. If you want to stop by and visit, wow. you can use it as a, as a sort of a waypoint. Nice. And my girlfriend and I ended up stopping by and we had just been so exhausted from the trip. And so we ended up staying there for about three weeks. So with, with his permission, we said, Hey, we think we want to like just kind of sit for a while. I want to focus on a screenplay idea that I have. And can we just kind of take this as almost a, almost a month of a retreat. And that is the only thing I did for those three and a half weeks. That's the only thing I thought of. I was writing, I would get up, I would write for two hours, have lunch, 
right for another two hours, have dinner, or something in that order. But uh, no casinos. No, no casinos. <laughs> no, I would get up. I would write, have lunch. I would write. I would read a screenplay, have dinner, and then I would watch a movie. And both the screenplays that I was reading in the evening and the movie, I had picked as something that was I wanted to either examine um, craft-wise or thematically was similar enough to the story I was writing. So I was just in that mode all day, nonstop. And I just wrote that screenplay in, in about three and a half weeks. And I haven't changed too much of it since. I did a, a little bit of rewriting, but most of that came out of that extremely focused work. And I don't know a time in my life that I've had that sort of freedom to just create something that is just purely for me with no considerations for, for, for job or whatever. It was just, that was all I was doing. I was essentially paying myself to do that. Um, and it was great, it was really fantastic. What time of year was that in Reno? Um, was it winter or no? This was in September. Okay. So the, the weather was nice. Mm -hmm. um, I was I was doing that six days a week, and then one day was uh, we would do a day trip. We'd go, we went, and we hiked in Tahoe. Nice. We like um, hiked some stuff around Reno. So it was six days of focused uh, work, and then one day to take advantage of where we were. Did the film get made? Nope. Okay, it's still. Do you think you'll ever have it made? Um, or it was an experiment? It was an experiment. I wanted to try and, I wanted to write something contained. And I thought maybe if I wrote something contained, it could also be a stage play. And so right now the film kind of exists in this uncanny valley between stage and screen and is neither a good, it's not really a good fit for either. So, I think if I wanted to seriously pursue it, I would have to really examine, is this something I want to see on screen? Or do I want to make it a stage play? And make some craft decisions uh, from that perspective. Sounds like though it was a good lesson in, in discipline. Not that, sounds like you, you are very disciplined anyway, but to really like, and you're in a strange place where you want to explore. There's lots mm -hmm. to do in Reno. Yeah. Um, some of it's good, some of it's not yeah, so good. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know what I'm saying? And, and so it was a lesson in discipline, like, can I do this? Yeah, and that was the first time that I, that was the first time that I wrote something on spec in a serious way. I'd kind of written my own stuff before, but I not in any real capacity, even if, it, even if that's just for my own sort of, mental state. This is the first time I said, I'm going to try and write something and at the end of this, I'm going to try to give it to people to show that I can screenwrite. Um, and everyone that I've shown it to and we, we uh, said, great characters, great story, but I don't quite know where this belongs, uh, but good writing. And so I, I moved on to other projects since, but uh, we, we were talking about validation earlier, and that was another time when I got some validation on uh, a project of mine. Even though it wasn't great, it was good enough that people were seemed to be surprised by how 
oh, you're, you, you can write. You're actually pretty good. Well, you always hear that sort of the romantic notion of, oh, I'm going to you know, go away and write the great American novel or whatever it is, screenplay, and then too many things distract you and get in the way. And so I think just as a, as a mere test of can you keep that commitment to yourself, mm-hmm. that's excellent. That's pretty cool. Yeah, when there's when there's nothing else going on, yeah, it's 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 like the greatest thing in the world to just sit down and just continue to write your story. But uh, you know that for me, uh, where I am right now, that's not a sustainable lifestyle, and I, that's completely focusing on the uh, craft of screenwriting. And I was completely ignoring, of course, all the the career side of screenwriting, of calls and emails and relationships and everything. So even that, as much as I might want to do that, even if I had the money to do it, I don't think I'd be able to sustain a career doing that because you have to do all the other things that it requires to make a career in screenwriting. And a lot of that is relationships. Your latest screenwriting credit is Long Gone By, mm-hmm. and you, you share credit with co, co-writing on that? Yes. With uh, Andrew Morgan? Yes, yeah, he was okay. the director. Okay, great. Can you tell us what the story's about? Sure. It's about a, a mother, an immigrant mother living in middle America, and on the same day she finds out that her uh, visa, she's on a six-month visa that, that continually um, gets renewed and she finds out it's not going to be renewed and on the same day she finds out that her daughter was accepted into college but it's a it's a state school but because she's technically not a state resident she has to pay out-of-state tuition and she just can't afford it so she finds out all this information on the same day and basically has to figure out what is she going to do she sees the life that she wants for her daughter and why she came to America for it. And she sees that if she can't get her into this school, that it might not happen. And so after exhausting all of her options, she decides that she's going to rob a few banks. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, and, when I, and when I heard this story from Andrew, that's where I really leaned in. I was like, oh, she's going to rob some banks. Okay, that's when I really got... Um, interested and we were just talking over coffee about it we had some mutual friends that that put us together and so we just decided to meet up and we'd kind of actually the the meeting had been like scheduled and then rescheduled for like eight months that we were planning to just meet up and meet each other because we had some mutual friends from from our time in Atlanta and there was no sense of this is going to be a job or anything like that but I met up with Andrew and he's just telling me and he was sort of figuring out he was debating where to, what piece of information to lead with. Does she find out that she's going to get deported and that's the first piece of information? Or does she find out that her daughter got into school, a really nice uh, college, but can't afford it? And figuring out there. And we, we were just talking about it, so I sort of gave my two cents. And, and then a few days later, he goes, I really liked the way you were thinking about my story. Uh, would you be interested in doing a rewrite? And I said, yeah, that sounds cool. And, sorry, was this based on a documentary that he and the, the actress producer had done it was, a documentary? With? It was not based on a specific documentary, um, at least not, not to my knowledge. He, 
he uh, was very in involved in some of the immigration issues and stuff going on at the time. And he'd also heard of a story about a group of women in Florida that were robbing banks without guns. They were just walking up quietly and just taking money from the tellers in a very quiet way. And he thought there was something fascinating about that. And so that's sort of how the, the, the bank robberies are very low key in the film. And he had kind of t taken some of these ideas uh, and teamed up with an actress that he knew well and he knew could pull off this this character because it's a lot of it's a lot of her and it's a lot of her in silence with herself, which is r really tough for a for a film to watch uh, for the the length of time that he was thinking we'd be on her without cuts. And I was a little hesitant at first, but after seeing it on the screen, I go, he he was right. She's magnetic, and everyone just you could watch her um, seemingly do nothing, and you should see everything going on, and that's. The character and that's what they knew and so I came in essentially as more of like a carpenter to help just build a few things that they were needed some work on and well we put the film together and he shot it in just a few weeks and I think it turned out great. In where did you shoot it? It was shot in Indiana. He found a small town that looked very much like the town that we were envisioning this happening in and he basically just leveraged the town as his pr production design and so everything you see in the film is was just discovered in the town very little had to be made um, and there was a lot of value in making it real and a place that people live and it looks like a place that this story would take place. And how did he know that town? Um, I'm not sure actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because the trailer looks beautiful, and you can see it does seem very not Rust Belt, but you know, you just you, I envision a small town, and you'd set off camera that was one where maybe a factory had closed or people were. It just yeah, the the town um, the town in the film is uh, supposed to look just sort of in its, I'd say, economic decline. And so I don't think the town he shot in necessarily looks exactly like the way it does in the film, but he did a good job of, if it, if it was a location that looked like it might be an economic decline, that's the one he shot at. <laughs> and then the really great, great one right over there, just keep that off camera. And sure. so he did a really good job at, at shooting what felt like a real town that was, uh, a, a factory might have closed in. And so he had already written the script? Sorry. Yeah. And um, you came in? And yeah, he had written, I think, three drafts of the script. I, I think I, I think it was the fourth, fourth draft. Um, and I'm not qu quite sure because he really gave me a lot of freedom to move things around in a very big way. And that was really one of the things that I think allowed us to actually finish when we did because he was already in pre-production and there was the shooting date already scheduled for the start and there were times when I was writing and he was in Indiana location scouting and I'd be writing the scene and I would get notifications we had a shared Dropbox with the location photos and I'd be seeing the locations fly in on my monitor 
of the thing I was actually writing. Mm -hmm. So it was a very quick turnaround. But at the same time, there was a lot of sort of freedom and mobility there because I didn't have to think about a lot of these things because it's like, you know, interior laundromat. Um, I don't have to think about what this looks like because there's the photos, like I already know. And I already knew a lot of the pieces and I had the ability to move them around within the script. I just couldn't add uh, too much or take away too much because cast uh, actors had been cast and certain location deals had already gone through and it, just, it was gonna be too much work to pull those out, find new ones. And so it's so it's like someone um, giving you an erector set and no instructions on how to make it, but you can't, these are the pieces you have. And I kind of want it to look like this. And so Andrew knew his story very well. And so we were really able to move quickly in terms of making the screenplay something that supported that story because he knew it in and out and I was able to take the screenplay and I'd send pages every night and he'd get back to me every morning of, yes, that's great. Oh no, this, this isn't quite gonna work because here's why. And he was very quick with his notes and very succinct and spot on. And how long did the whole rewrite process take? Cause you said that was his third draft when he sent it to you? Yeah, about five weeks. Wow. Yeah, we did about a week and a half on a very rough outline, making sure that the, the big pieces were were there where we wanted and, and he was comfortable with me moving forward on an outline. And then once that got the thumbs up, then I had about three and a half weeks to do the draft. And of, of course it's all digital, but it very much felt like that last day of like passing, it's like running and it's like, here's the screenplay and someone grabs it and just like goes out and like, they were shooting it like two days later. And it was wild. I, I, um, I had some other stuff going on while they were shooting. So I was uh, every now and then getting like an update from the set or a question or two. But for the most part, they took it and ran with it. And um, I trusted Andrew with the story. He had been in that world much longer than I had. So I felt like, cool, they're taking care of it. and then. A, a couple months later, he showed me a rough cut. When he showed me the rough cut, it was, it had come together far quicker than I thought it would, and it looked fantastic. I only had two thoughts on it. I only had two notes. There was one thing at the beginning, and I said, I think this cut is just a, a frame or two too early because you can, you can hear her breath, but we're not seeing her. It was, it was something like that. Um, and then at the very end, there was a shot of the American flag. And if, if you see if you see the film, I think it deals with um, immigration issues. And even though the main characters um, are from another country, I I feel like the film, and I told this to Andrew, is inherently American. It's, he's made a very American film. Um, in my perspective. And I said, I think the shot of the flag near the end, I don't think you need it. I think we already feel this and it feels just like one, one thing too far. And he goes, I was thinking that. Yeah, yeah. I, 
And so that was, we we had both notes we had we'd like agreed on, and he was already kind of thinking about. And I said, but that's just my two cents. And if you want, you know, obviously, you have have a vision for it. And I think it's it's great. And he goes, well, no, I think I think you're right. We'll we'll take those two things, and it's pretty close to what the final cut is. Well, even in the trailer, she says, I can't go back. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the film. Yeah. I'd love to, but uh, the trailer is excellent, and she says, I can't go back, and you feel it in that moment that there's probably many reasons, but you can tell this is her home now. She feels, you know, so I, I don't know if the American flag was, I didn't see that <laughs> part, but did you feel that it was too obvious? Or Yeah, it was just, because it was just part of a, the shot was part of a montage, and it was just some footage that he had, picked up throughout the town. They were constantly just shooting B-roll and it gives the town a very a real lived-in feel. And so it was not in the script. And I just thought within this montage, all these images are specific and feel like kind of um, that classic kind of nostalgic feeling of America. So just to like put a shot on the flag, you just didn't need it because we are already having these images that were evoking America without saying, hey, did you get it, by the way? Here's the American flag. Um, and so we, we just didn't need it. Talking about scripts being overwritten, it is a similar thing. It's like you, you're already communicating the idea that you want to communicate. You, It's not that this is changing anything, it's just you don't need it. And if you can ever simplify, always simplify. Because the audience is, at that point, they're just going, yeah, I get it, move on. What's, you know, give me the next piece of information. Wow, very cool. And the film screened in LA? It screened, the film premiered in New York at HBO's uh, New York Latino Film Festival. And then uh, did a few other festivals. I was in England at the time of the New York premiere, so I I couldn't attend. So the first time I saw it, in, in a theater with an audience was at the, that film festival was the, it was so small, but um, so much, like the little after party thing. I, like I've never seen so much kind of money spent on little things. Like there was a um, remote control Cadillac Escalade that oh was goodness. delivering beers oh my goodness. throughout the party. And the most bespoke, uh, like gelato company, presenting these things. It was, it was, it was crazy. I, I was, I felt totally out of my element. What's the most joy you've had as a writer? The most joy I've had as a writer is seeing my work affect people, both at. Uh, a, a screening of something I wrote that has been made into a film. And then also even in a table read um, or even just hearing it after, after the fact, someone read my screenplay and just talks about not what's good about it or what's not working, but just where they responded to. Um, I think that's when I've gotten the most joy because I think it's, what we're trying to do. I think as a screenwriter, you're trying to affect someone. And when you can do that in an honest and real way through a piece of art that you made, 
I think you've achieved the goal, at least in terms of the art. And on the flip side, the most pain you've had as a writer? The most pain I've had as a writer are the days that I didn't write and I have no good reason that I didn't write. Feeling like I should have, I, I planned to put in the work today and I didn't. And that's going to uh, set me back simply as a professional that shows up to do the job. That feels tough looking at yourself in the mirror and recognize that there was there was no nobody holding you back today except for you. And that feeling is tough. Were you always that honest with yourself? Like knowing this is more me than, well, I had this deadline to meet. And that's pretty self-reflective. It's um I think I've always been self-reflective but not always in I think a very honest way I think I was interested in a lot of um, self-help books and stuff to make me a better person a better writer a better whatever but I wasn't actually putting in the work of like kind of who I am now and and how I tick and and what um, gets me going what turns me off all those sort of things I'd never really done the self-reflection required for that I was just kind of taking a lot in externally, but not really doing the internal digging. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I realized that and started doing that self-reflection. And it's tough, I think. I think it's necessary to be a great artist. I think you have to do that, especially if you're putting yourself out on the page. You have to really understand who you are so that you understand what's coming out. and. It's not always the best picture of yourself. The reflection that you see changes day to day. And that has as much to do with who you are um, inside, but also who you are in what, what you're seeing. It's, it's, it's perception both inward and outward. And um, sometimes when you see that reflection and you say, ah, oh, that's, you know, you had no good reason to not work today on your art that you say you love. So what's what's going on? And when I can't really find an answer that feels satisfactory, it's probably the most pain I feel as a writer. So do you think you, you feel like you've let yourself down? Yeah, and I think that's really, that's the biggest letdown, is that I have let myself down and Everything else in relation to that, I feel like I can take in stride. If someone doesn't like my work, if someone doesn't uh, want to produce my work, if someone doesn't want to work with me, there's always, there's always, you know, there's someone else that is involved in that dynamic. And so there's always something there to say, okay, well, I, I can do all the self-reflection I want, but at, at, maybe that's just on them. There's something there and like that this just isn't gonna work out. Like for whatever reason, if I let that person down, if they let me down, there's always someone else. But if it's, when it's you letting yourself down, there's no one else to deflect any of that feeling towards. 
whether that deflection is right or wrong. And so you just kind of feel it on both ends, I think, because you, you, let, you let someone down yourself and you are also let down by someone yourself. So it, it, it can be a little isolated and lonely and painful when that happens, but it's human. I think we all do that. And so I guess I should remember that as well. Well, that goes back to when we started out the interview, which was just being in LA and traffic and then wanting to arrive on time, especially mm -hmm. if you want to be punctual. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's just things just totally doesn't matter. You could have, you know, oh, a half hour early, I'll be fine, you know, and some crazy thing happens and there's a roadblock and, and going back to you feel like you've, you've let yourself and someone else down, but it's out of your control kind of thing. Yeah. So it's when everything, when everything is in your control and it happens. That's when I feel the pain. I keep repeating pain because I feel like that's that, that, okay, was, well, we that was the question. Makes yeah. it feel it makes it seem more dramatic. But that's when that's when as a writer, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 tough. I think. So I mean, the way out of that is to show up and write. So that's what I try to do. I mean, I don't know if it's the it's like the best story but i do i it's it sticks in my mind for whatever reason so i guess i'll share this one but um i remember i was at a uh a screenwriter's lab and we were put into peer groups and we all we uh, with four people so i'd read three other scripts and and the, the, the other three had read mine and then we took turns giving feedback with each other and it had come time for mine and um I felt I felt good about this script. It was um, so, and I was excited for the the feedback. And um, two of the people are are giving me good feedback. It's really good, little little um, really sharp notes, really good, helpful stuff. And but this other person is just kind of silently listening and nodding, and and so finally it, it comes to her to. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, to hear what she's about to say. I feel like she, she's been pretty quiet. And, and she goes, okay, so your script takes place on a farm. And I go, yeah. She goes, have you ever been on a farm before? And I just felt like the wind got like knocked right out of my sails. And, um, and, and we, we've become good friends since, and so we, we always talk about the moment. And it, it clearly affected me more than what she meant. It was it was a, a, a smaller note than maybe I took it, but it, it emotionally felt like, it's just like, you have no clue what you're talking, like, why are you writing this thing? You have no clue what you're talking about. And um, the script ultimately isn't about farming at all, so it's, it's not super essential, but, and I was able to go back in and sort of fix some of those things that, oh, that's actually not how a farm works, or oh, that's actually maybe how crops would be. Um, but I just do remember that moment of feeling like, I don't know what I'm, I'm doing. Um, and to me, that, that's a moment that I, that sticks out for me as uh, feeling very real in the moment and the, the fear of, it's not that I don't know what I'm talking about in, in farming, but like, I don't know if, if that's the, if that's what she's thinking about, then Clearly, my this work is just not. There's nothing. It must be empty. It must be not resonating with anyone. If people are just saying, "Oh, that that's not how farming works," and I 
think about that story often because that fear seemed, I now realize that fear wasn't quite uh, real. That's just an insecurity that I think we all have as people sharing our work. And that's something that will happen and is okay to happen. And you just, you learn to live with it when your work it doesn't even matter if it, if it does or doesn't resonate with someone, if you feel like it does or doesn't resonate with someone. That's more about you than anything else and just put that away and just focus on the work. Do you now take that one instance as it doesn't even matter what someone says, it's more your, your perception of it? And so even if that person was intending to take your power away or even if they just had constructive criticism, but it, it, you realize now that like, Maybe there's, it's like a muscle, and so now it's not as, as, as you're not as squeamish, no matter what, whatever, it's arms crossed and they're just totally silent, and you're like, oh, this person's not buying me at all. Or, or, but it's, you've become more comfortable? Yeah, because I, I, I recognize that that reaction is way more about me, especially since I've become friends with the person, and she has been one of the biggest supporters of both me, and specifically that script. It was actually her... Like she loved it of everything that she's read from me because she's read other stuff since. And that still remains her favorite. And she loved it so much that she just w wanted to talk about these little specific things about farming because she really resonated with something else. And so once I learned all of that and it just really recontextualized everything, like, oh, this, this, was, this is just about me and my reaction to my insecurity. So it's, it's fine. Like the work is, is gonna be what it is. And if I am so attached to it in that way, like I'm only gonna be feeling that all the time and that's just, I don't wanna be doing that. So just really being like, you pour yourself out on the page and then you have to kind of separate yourself from that thing. And that story always reminds me of that, that yes, I try to spill my guts on the page and choose something real and truthful but ultimately that's not me. That's, that's the work I could put out at that time. And if, if that's what it is, then that's what it is. That's, that's not actually me. It feels like me, but it's not. And I can't live and die off of other people's reactions to that. So for a new screenwriter who's just getting their work out and, and hasn't maybe developed that, that thick skin yet. Mm -hmm. It sounds like they just have to go through it and it forms on its own. Yeah, you have to go through it. And I think the, the quicker you can go through it, just get your stuff in front of people. The more people can be like, tell you this is terrible, the better off you'll be in the, in the long run because we're, you, you will always feel that way, that it's not good enough, I think. And the more you just learn to, I think, live with that, the, the better you'll be at separating yourself from it.